Well, I was going to start off by boring you with a sports analogy, but I figured I'd save you that, and uh, we'll just get right into our study. So, as you look at the book of Nehemiah, there's a danger that you can miss the community nature of this book. You think of it as a book on leadership, and you say to yourself, well, this must be some type of book that is to help me improve in my personal quality and success in my ability to lead others. But don't miss a big point about leadership. Leaders lead in community. It's about community. Leaders are not lone individuals pursuing individual accomplishments. Leaders have a vision for a community that lives together, worships together, works together, lives beyond itself, and pursues the advancement of God's purposes together. They lead in community because they are a part of a community. Leadership principle number 24. Leaders are committed to building community. Are you committed to that? Are you committed to building community? If you're not committed to building community, I would suggest to you that you're not a leader. If that is instrumentally why you come to church, why you do what you do, then I would submit to you that you are a leader. Nehemiah is, uh, chapter 7 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Nehemiah. You'll notice that as you're making your way through this book that the first six chapters deal primarily with the building of this wall and Nehemiah's personal leadership to accomplish this. And it's quite miraculous they build the wall in 52 days. Remember, we talked about the nature of the book not ending at chapter 6 of Nehemiah. We said to ourselves, well, don't you want to end this book with the fireworks? Don't we like a happy ending? But then you get all this weird uh, <laughs> language where Tobiah is operating underneath the table and he's trying to uh, lead the people away from the purposes that Nehemiah has instilled in them. And we saw that there's a big point that Nehemiah is making to us in that uh, there's a bigger priority than a wall. He has God's glory and human flourishing on his mind. Part of the pivot or the transition that happens here is the first six or the first seven chapters of Nehemiah are a first person narrative. It's a story about him leading. But then as you get to chapter eight and you move forward, he moves into the background and it becomes a third person narrative. It becomes about the community. In their story. So how do you build a community? This is the question on Nehemiah's mind. It's the question on my mind all the time. I hope it's the question on your mind. How do you build a community? There are so many people that are wanting purpose and are desiring to be a part of a community, but we have no idea how to do it. I tell you, it's not to be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Those do not build community. It's a subject that we desperately need to find clarity on in God's word as we need to do with all subjects. So let's look at Nehemiah 7 together. If you're not there, um, you can grab a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, turn to page 402, and we'll pick up on the story. We're going to make our way through this chapter piecemeal. Um, we're going to see that Nehemiah takes certain steps to lay healthy foundations for healthy God-glorifying community. Let's begin at verse 1. 
The text says, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. And we'll stop there and just make mention of what he's doing here. Uh, it's interesting to see what leaders do in their first couple of days of leadership, isn't it? Uh, the priorities that they establish. Now, for Nehemiah, he's been leading with the building of the wall, but now that he has finished the wall, this is really the first priorities of this community starting to take shape. Think of what George Washington wrote in 1790 when he was talking about his first days as president. He said, My station is new, and if I may use the expression, I walk on untrodden ground. There is scarcely any part of my conduct which may not hereafter be drawn into precedent. George Washington realized that the things that he did in these first couple of days of office would set a precedence to his successors and also to this young nation. And I think Nehemiah recognizes the same thing here. And so the text says that he appointed the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. He was prioritizing worship, reestablishing the worship of this community. You see, the people of Israel had been brought into captivity for quite some time, and the centrality of their worship was found at the epicenter of their city, Jerusalem, in the temple. Derek Kidner, a commentator, said that worship is Jerusalem's raison d'etre. I have a terrible French accent, but that means their reason to exist. And in that captivity, they'd lost sight of that. Psalm 137 says this, by the rivers of Babylon we sit down and weep when we remember Zion. On the poplars in her midst we hang our harps, for there our captors ask us to compose songs. Those who mock us demand that we be happy, saying, sing for us a song about Zion. As you move on to verse 5, May my hand be crippled. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you and do not give Jerusalem priority over whatever gives me the most joy. Now are they really talking about a city there? About Jerusalem? No. They're talking about the God who chose to reside there in that temple. May my hand be crippled. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. How does a church put God first? Isn't that an odd question? You'd think by the nature of what a church is that they would naturally just put God first, wouldn't they? But evidently, that's not the case. We see that in Revelation. Jesus says these words to the church in Ephesus. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's so easy to get busy about doing the things of God that we forget that the Christian life is all about the pursuit of God. To know Him. To love Him. To want to see His name be made great. So how do we keep Christ first? 
I love that illustration. I'm sure you've seen it before, uh, where they take a jar, some rocks, and some sand. You guys familiar with this one? And they're using these objects to create a picture of how we make priorities in life. The idea is pretty simple. The rocks represent those things which are most important, family, worship, um, investing in your marriage, those types of things. The sand represents everything else life presents to you, doesn't it? Life tends to fill up our jar without us trying to fill it up, doesn't it? Whether it's people asking you to do things, sports schedules, cars breaking down, that never happens, right? Whatever else happens in life, sand just gets into our jars and people don't have room for the rocks because they haven't made the rocks a priority. How do you get the rocks in the jar? I was thinking about this uh, when I do premarital counseling. I, I regularly say in session number one to the couple that worship is most important for your marriage. You're in your marriage, starting with an empty jar. You have this big rock called worship. I want you to take it into that empty jar and set it down into the middle. And then put your other priorities in place and the sand will fill up around it. It's a lot easier to do it then, isn't it? Because typically, uh, life fills the jar with sand and then you gotta do all this work to get the rock into the jar, don't you? You gotta push it down past the sand to make it a priority in your life. What Jesus is saying here is this is the most important thing. Make sure that you don't miss the main thing for the secondary things of life. All right, let's look at the next step Nehemiah takes to build healthy community. Verse two. The text says, I gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Why? For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. I would submit to you that the second principle here is that healthy communities need healthy leaders. Now why would Nehemiah not just simply do this all by himself? We see this paradigm in the scriptures where leaders train leaders, equip leaders, share authority with leaders, delegate responsibilities. But why not just do it all by yourself? I mean, certainly you're better at it than they are, right? Well, I'd submit to you that there's two reasons for this. The first is that you can't do everything by yourself. Good luck with that. Remember, Nehemiah's vision isn't just to build a wall, it's to build a community. It's to build a, a nation up that would be God-exalting, God-glorifying amongst the nations. And he couldn't do it all by himself. I think the second thing is that you're not immortal. From the day that you were born, that hourglass on your life tipped over, didn't it? The sands of time started to pour, and one day the last grain of sand will go through. You will breathe your last breath. A leader cares just as much about the future as they do the present. The goal of every leader should be to establish a better tomorrow by getting busy through the efforts of today. We don't want to leave behind a surviving church. We want to leave behind a healthy church, a thriving church, a church that is impactful, a purer church, a more committed church. 
So how do you do this? Well, you do it by developing future leaders. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Notice that Paul is dealing with four generations here. He's talking about himself, Timothy, trusting the faithful men who will then in turn, what? Teach others. Leadership development. I think of, uh, when I think of a model for leadership development, this guy, Mark Dever, kind of looks like he should be on Young and the Restless, right? <laughs> Some of you have no idea what that show is. Um, I, I promise I've never watched it before. Uh, I only know about it because my grandmother, every day at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, had to watch her stories. So, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Dever. Now, Dever is a pretty busy guy, to put it mildly. He leads a church of over 900 members with more regular attenders. He leads a, a network called the Nine Marks Network, writes books, speaks at conferences, and oh yes, has a family. Do you know how much time he spends investing in future leaders? I've heard this through the grapevine. 10 to 12 hours per week. 10 to 12 hours per week. In his book, Discipling, he cites one of the reasons that he does this. He says, for me, discipling is the only way I can evangelize non-Christians and equip Christians in the one place where I cannot travel the future beyond my life. Discipling others now is how I try to leave, get this, time bombs of grace. I love that. Leadership principle number 25, leaders invest in future leaders. Are you leaving time bombs of grace? Are you investing a portion of your time into raising up another Christian? Now, how do you do this? Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about here. Well, you teach them to do what you've learned how to do. You teach them to read the Bible the way you've learned to read the Bible, to share Christ the way you've learned to share Christ, to pray that you've learned to share uh, pray. And I'll tell you what, some of you are probably thinking, well, no one's ever taught me to do those things. That's okay. What I would submit to you at this point is go find a mature Christian and ask them to start investing in you, but then shortly thereafter, I'm not talking about seven, ten years down the road, I'm talking six months to one year down the road. You go and find someone else and start working with them. Before we move on, I'd just like to highlight another aspect of this leadership thing. Nehemiah looked for, uh, look at what he looked for in leaders. The text doesn't read, Nehemiah chose the most competent men with the best education, most extensive work history, and most winsome personality he could find. I don't read that in the text. No, verse 2 says he looked for people who were more faithful and more God-fearing. Competence is important, but character is essential. Character is more important than competence. Two things. Faithfulness means to be constant. It means to be trustworthy. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, reliable. See a principle in Luke 16.10? One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Are you faithful? When you're entrusted with a responsibility, do you see it through to completion? 
if you're called to be a greeter? Do you faithfully complete the task or do you no call, no show? And people ask the question, well, why do I not get more responsibility in the Christian life? And maybe it's because you're not being responsible with the little. And so you can't be entrusted with the much. That's for each one of us to consider in our heart. I want you to look at something else, God-fearer. Solomon wrote about this in the Proverbs, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're not even on the path of wisdom until you understand who God is, his character, his holiness, having an awe and reverence of him. You're not even beginning to understand the world until that point. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What happens when leaders do not fear God? They endanger many lives. Jonah ran away. He endangered the life of people on a ship. David, in his pride, conducted a census. 70,000 lives were lost. Solomon fell into idolatry and pleasure over God. His decision divides a nation. There is great risk when leaders do not fear the Lord. Let's move on, verses three and four. Nehemiah talks about another principle here. I would submit to you that healthy communities protect the people. Verse three and four says, and I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Verse 4 there highlights that something's not quite right in Jerusalem. In fact, it's a big problem. Hardly anyone's living there. I mean, this is the place where God's name would be made great, where his Glory was supposed to showcase amongst the nations, and it's a ghost town. We're going to talk more about that when we get to chapters 11 and 12, but for now, the people need to be protected, don't they? It's vulnerable to attack. It's great to have a wall for protection, but if the guards are asleep at the post or there's not enough guards to guard the gates, what happens when the enemy comes? Healthy communities protect the people. People cannot freely live their lives, raise their families, worship God. If they are under constant threat, it just doesn't work. And the Bible tells Christians that we have a great enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us of this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Why? Seeking whom he might devour. When you look at the Bible and you see the descriptors of this enemy, he is referred to here as a lion. He is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the wolf who enters into the gate of the sheepfold and scatters the sheep. Revelation 12 talks about him as being a dragon with great fury. 
You want to know what Satan's goal for your life is? Utter destruction. That's his goal. Well, God has a wonderful plan for your life because he loves you. Satan has a terrible plan for your life because he hates your guts. And the people of God do well to remember that we do have this enemy who wants to bring turmoil into your family, get you distracted from the mission of God to see churches grow inward focused and become become more about keeping people than reaching people outside of them and divisive and splitting. We need the family of God for the sake of protection against this enemy. When you operate in the Christian life solo, You're like a sitting duck. There's strength in numbers. Now there's a lot more here that we could talk about, but we're going to move on because the chapter moves on. Um, The next thing that we see is that healthy communities are sure of who they are and what they are to do. Now this is that big section of text, that genealogy. Let's look first at verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found it written in it. So if you've been following along with this series, you'll notice that this is the second time that Nehemiah talks about God laying something on his heart. There are two times that Nehemiah faced a problem. And it was a problem that stifled the glory of God. And two times, God lays a solution on his heart. Isn't it awesome that God works in that way? As you're praying to him, as you're, you're seeking him, a lot of times in those moments is when he reveals the nature of what you are to do. What is the problem here? The people of Israel didn't have a sense of who they are, what they were doing. Nehemiah would need to bring them together spiritually. He would need to remind them, you are the chosen people of God meant to display the glory of God to the nations. And we see this all over the scripture, Psalm 66. Israel's, Israelite here is self-aware. May God show us his favor and bless us. May he smile on us. Then those living on earth will know what you are like All nations will know how you deliver your people. Now, uh, I know many of you will be sad, but I'm not going to read this whole genealogy. And I know some of you are sick and demented because you like to watch the preacher struggle through some of these names, but I'm not giving you that this morning. But I want to talk about why this genealogy is important and spend our time there. The first thing reason it's important is it has something to do with salvation history. We see that the, the continuity of the Messiah's lineage is not broken through the exile. Genesis 3, God told Satan that one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of Satan, that he would restore this fallen creation. 
And as you move through the Bible, you get a sense of who this Messiah is. His identity becomes clearer, first to Abraham when he's called out, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then on down to the 12 tribes of Israel, specifically Judah. When we move to 2 Samuel 7, we realize that the Messiah would be a part of the line of the kings, a descendant of David. God wanted his people to know that this Messiah would be someone who is very specific, would come out of this lineage. And this is why Matthew and Luke, if you read the Gospels, take pains to write out that genealogy. It wasn't because they're boring guys. It's because they knew that this was one of the strongest pieces of evidence that they would have to showcase that Christ is the long-awaited one. He is the Messiah. Secondly, in Nehemiah's context, it also gives the people a sense of who they are. Um, Verse 7, you'll notice that he lists 12 leaders there. Is that number 12 important? There's an idea here, and many commentators believe that that number 12 is representative of the 12 tribes. The name mentioned Zerubbabel is a distant relative of Christ. And as you move on forward, you also see mention of family groups, villages, priests, Levites, temple singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and various other servants. These are records to establish and reestablish the identity of the people of Israel, an identity that was put into them by God himself. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and 7, God explains their identity to them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This is who they are, this is their identity. And it's so important that when you look at verses 61 and 63, you actually see that there is a group who is excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't demonstrate their Israelite heritage. Now, what does this mean for the Christian? Well, in the Old Testament, this ethnic identity of Israel was how they understood themselves, who they are, what they are to be about, When you move into the New Testament, our identity shifts from some kind of ethnic grounding to an identity that is founded in Jesus Christ and being found in him and being a people who have come together in Christ by faith. In fact, Peter uses the same language Moses used in Deuteronomy to describe the church. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in fact, this shared identity is so strong that it breaks down by way of priority, all of our other identities. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. The scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this is where the rubber meets the road. When someone comes up to you and says to you, who are you? Tell me a little something about yourself. Your first response to that type of identity question should have something to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. You are not first African American or Korean American or Caucasian American or any other ethnic identification. You are not first male or female. You are not first middle class or upper class or lower class. You are not first American. I hate to burst that bubble on July 4th weekend. You are first a blood-bought sinner saved by grace. You are a Christ one, a Christian. And while I never say that those identifiers disappear, I'm still um, a Caucasian American male, middle class, other identifiers that I can't think of right now. But I am most deeply identified in my relationship with Christ. All other identifiers are subservient to that identity. Are you in Christ? Have you come to know God through his son, Jesus? If you haven't come to know God through his son, let me tell you, this is the most important decision that you will ever, ever make in this lifetime. Join the family of God. Become a part of his people who are on mission. And I promise you, he will change you. He will radically turn your life upside down, but all for the better. Let's look at one last point. I think there's one more dimension of healthy community, and then we'll move into communion. Healthy communities remember the sacrifices of the past. Verse 6, chapter 7, these were the people of the providence who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now I would submit to you this question. Where would this generation be if 80 years ago Jews decided to stay in Babylon? And just think about it. Yes, they were in exile, but life had grown increasingly comfortable. In fact, as you look at verses 70 to 73, it indicates that they actually, some of them were quite wealthy. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they knew in their hearts that God's will for their life was more important than personal luxury. God's will is always more important than personal luxury. So they uprooted their lives. They moved hundreds of miles away to a land that had been devastated by war. Notice also the records indicate that the exiles gave financially, sacrificially to the work of the ministry. Verse 70, 
the heads of the father's house gave to the work, and then they list a bunch of numbers that we're not really familiar with, but some scholars estimate that these returning nobles gave upwards of $5 million in today's currency to the work of the temple. I marvel at that foresight. Yes, they're investing in something that has something to do with their work today, but it also extends far beyond themselves. I marvel at the foresight of the men and women who sacrificially gave and erected this building up from the ground. For 180 years, that investment into the future of the Christian work has stood. And many, many Christians have been risen up in this church and sent out for the work of the ministry. That's an endowment for the future, isn't it? It's quite a thought and a fitting reminder as we consider July 4th weekend, isn't it? There were men and women who saw a higher ideal with regard to freedom. And we enjoy a freedom today that we did not earn, but thank God we get to participate in. When you think about the church of Jesus Christ, there are men and women who have laid down their lives for a higher ideal of freedom, a better freedom. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We have received much from the past. The question now that I pose to you is what are you going to leave to the next generation of Christians? How are you investing in today to leave a legacy to them? Are you investing by total commitment or partial commitment? Are you giving to the work of the ministry or are you sitting upon it? Are you leaving those time bombs of grace and discipleship? Or are you going to die holding the torch in your hand, clinging to it? Leadership Principle 26. Leaders leave a legacy. Do you want to leave a legacy? You are a part of something that is much bigger than you. You are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, and I invite you, I implore you, build a legacy with me. Let's build something together that endures for eternity. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?